Amen. Jesus talked about that the worshipers, he was, he was seeking worship and spirit and truth, and I'm thankful to be a part of a, a church family that does gather together and worship in spirit and truth, whether, whether we have our hands raised or whether the posture of our hearts, which is what ultimately matters, is, is, is in the right spot. God seeks worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, find Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. And let me just say three things really fast. First, if you are new here at Crossroads, or maybe you're just new uh, to me uh, as the pastor of Crossroads, I know we have several folks that are returning now to worship post-COVID. Let me say first, we're glad you're here. Uh, if you have time before you leave today, we'd love to get connected. Uh, there is a card out at the welcome desk right out in the foyer that says get connected on it on the back i'd love for you to fill that out leave it with us we have a gift for you that we'd love to leave you with and we'd love just to follow up with you and uh, know how to pray with you in the days ahead also if you've been visiting with us uh, for a while or have been involved in the crossroads family and want to take that next step into uh, membership and becoming a, an, a, an official part of this family. On July 11th, we have our Discover class. You'll be hearing more about this, but it's sort of your first chance to learn more about our church, get some time to ask questions here, kind of where we're going, what our mission is. And so that's for you if you I have been visiting with us, or even if you've been with us for a long time and just want to get a refresher on why we do certain things the way we do it, that's July 11th after the service, and there will be lunch, but I'd ask that you'd sign up. That's on the bulletin board right outside of the front doors here just so we can get a count uh, for lunch. And then finally, let me call our church to pray for uh, Dilly Anderson. He's a part of our church family and just text me this morning not really doing well in his health in a lot of ways and so I told him not only I would pray for him but that I would call the church to pray together for him so I'm going to pray for Dilly before we dive in to Genesis 32 so let's pray together Father God we come before you thankful for the freedom to worship thankful for the opportunity to worship and thankful that you hear the prayers of your people and your word says that you hear us when we call to you. So right now, we as a church family call out to you on behalf of Dilly, who we know would normally be here among us and may even be watching now. We ask for you to, to, to comfort him, to heal him in the midst of his health needs, to help him in the midst of this. May we as your people be prompted to encourage him, to love him, to call him, to text him this week, and to let him know how much we care about him and love him. And I ask that you would be with him. Let him feel not only the love of his church family, but your comfort and love for him. And we do ask, Lord, knowing that the prayer of a righteous man uh, aboundeth much, asking that you would heal him and bring him just a supernatural healing and comfort and trusting that you'll do what's best according to your will. And so I ask that for Dilly now and for the weeks ahead. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Genesis 32. We're going to read uh, from, from verse 1 all the way to verse 32 together this morning. Let's look at God's word, Genesis 32. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So we called the name of the place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is on the left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. 
I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed and then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen the face, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed, Penuel limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of his thigh. This is the word of God. Many of you have likely heard of a man named C.S. Lewis. And if not, Lewis was a prolific Christian author, probably most famously known for his fiction series, The Chronicles of Narnia. Lewis uh, converted from Christianity, from atheism, to, in 1931 when he was in his early 30s, and his writings have left an incredible impact even to today. And One of my favorite books of his is the classic called Mere Christianity, which is a, a compilation of Lewis's radio talks where he argued for the truth of the Christian faith and kind of gave a basic overview of what true Christianity is and early in the book, Lewis addressed the classic question of the problem of evil. Now, the problem of evil is, is the question you'll hear where somebody will go, and I'm sure you've asked this, if God is good, why is there evil in the world? If God is good, why do bad things happen? And I think his response is provocative. Here's what Lewis wrote. My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak... Why did I, who was supposed to be a part of the show, find myself in such a violent reaction against it? 
Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying that it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. Thus, in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there was no light in the universe, and therefore no creature with eyes, we should never have known it was dark, dark would be without meaning." Friends, this is why Lewis has had such a profound impact, right, on the church and on generations ahead of him. He truly was a very provocative thinker. And what he's trying to say is this. There are really two options when it comes to the problem of evil. Either we argue for some sort of universal moral code, this innate sense of justice, a straight line that the world should be, to which all the crooked lines in the world must be compared to, or we give up the argument and say everything is meaningless. <laughs> because if everything's meaningless, we can't hold God to that sort of standard. If everything is meaningless, then so is our appeal to evil and how unjust the world is. But if everything isn't meaningless and we get this universal law of morality and justice, where does it come from? What standard can we appeal to if a universal moral code, if this, if this universal justice exists, then we must conclude that there is a universal lawgiver, this just person behind, this just judge behind this justice within us, namely God. And so Lewis then concludes that by appealing to evil, we show that there is good and therefore that God must exist. The problem with the problem of evil is that it isn't a problem for a Christian, but rather it's a problem for the secular mind that thinks the world is just matter in motion, accident after accident, the, a world without any guided purpose or direction. And the question of the problem of evil and your experience of pain are not just something for the philosophers to consider, but it's actually something the Bible comes face to face with. In fact, the life of Jacob brings us face to face with God's purpose for pain. We meet Jacob now at the end of his long journey. We've been walking through the book of Genesis for the last several months together, and he's been walking a long journey, both long in miles and long in his own growth. And in chapter 32, we see that Jacob is given a new name, just like Abraham was given a new name. And this new name and the explanation around it is key to understanding not only this whole passage, not only the life of Jacob, but key to seeing God's purpose in the midst of Jacob's pain. Look at verse 28. Then God said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So Jacob, whose name means deceiver, is now renamed Israel, which means he who strives with God. Jacob's legacy would be remembered as someone who wrestled, endured, persisted, and strove with men and with God. And this striving would not be apart from pain. In fact, in his striving, God reveals his purpose for the pain. Let's consider first in your notes, let's consider Jacob's striving with men. Jacob striving with man. From the very beginning, Jacob has been in conflict with, at war with, and striving with his own family, right? From the womb, we learn that Jacob was in conflict with his brother Esau. Look at, look at chapter 25, verse 23. Look at this. Then the Lord said to her, to Rebekah, two nations are in your womb. Two people within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the 
younger. This was spoken by God before either Jacob or Esau had been born and could do anything, either good or bad. And friends, it sets the tone for their relationship for their whole life. Each child would ultimately become a nation, and they would be in conflict, and the younger would rule over the older. Now notice what happens when they're first born. We get to the day of their birth, chapter 25, verse 26, and here's what we see. After his brother came out with his, afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Let's stop and consider poor Isaac. 60 years old, two newborn babies to take care of. And as they come out, you see Jacob holding Esau's heel. Jacob's name literally means healer. That's H-E-E-L-E-R, one who clings to the heel. And it also denotes Jacob's character as a deceiver. Recall that Jacob would trick Esau into giving away his birthright, and he conspired with his mother to have the blessing of Esau stolen. In fact, the conflicts of Jacob echo throughout his life. He was in conflict with Isaac in chapter 27 when he tricked him to think he was Esau. He was tricked by Laban to marry these two sisters in chapters 28 through 30. We saw last week how he fleed from Laban and made this covenant of peace with him. And in chapter 32, we see Jacob is ready to face Esau for the first time in decades. He has wronged him, and he knows this is coming. He strove with his parents. Friends, he was in conflict with his wives and his father-in-law, but his conflict with Esau was the one that really has loomed large over his life. He just has left the land of Laban and is headed home, and he is anticipating what he's going to encounter when he gets there. And we see this, Jacob makes a plan to meet Esau. So he's, he's striving with men, the, the big conflict has been he's going to meet Esau, and he makes a plan to meet Esau. Look at verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of the place Mahanaim, which means God's, or means two camps. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, female servants, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. So Jacob is making the hundreds of miles trip back home. Angels have met him, giving him assurance of his path and direction. God's favor was following him and, and comforting him and any doubts he may have. And so he sends these messengers ahead to meet Esau. He obviously knew how to find him and where he'd be, and he wanted to butter him up. He says, let me give him oxen, donkeys, flocks, servants as a gift, and maybe that'll make the conversation go a little smoother. Look at verse 6. Look what happens. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Jacob's worst nightmare, right? Esau's coming, and he's got people. 400 men are coming with him. Why? And of course, we see the patriarch's humanity here because he expects and prepares for the worst. None of us ever do that, do we? He begins to expect and to plan for the worst. Look at verse 7. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he, he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So Jacob makes this plan out of fear of, of Esau's retaliation. He divides his camp so that if Esau attacks, the other camp can flee. Pretty good military strategy, right? Pretty good, solid human wisdom. In other words, if you can't beat him in a fight, you better be ready to run, right? Pretty good, just general biblical advice, right? If you can't win the fight, be ready to run. And so Jacob plans... 
But then, as he, as he goes about this plan, he prays one of the longest prayers in the book of Genesis. Jacob prays to God for help. He plans to meet Esau, and he prays to God for help. Look at verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mother's with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So notice he begins to pray kind of un, this is, this is very uncharacteristic of Jacob. This is one of the first times we actually see him turning to God in prayer. And he prays empowered by three realities. He prays first empowered by God's past faithfulness, Notice how he starts by saying that you, God, are the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. He says, God, if you could get Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and get him to the promised land, and if you could guide my father Isaac through various trials, you can do the same for me. He prays empowered by God's past faithfulness. But he also prays, second, empowered by God's present promise. Empowered by God's present promise. God had promised Jacob that he would bring him to the land and do him good. That's something we saw last week in chapter 31. In fact, we see that at the end of the prayer, this goodness included making him into a multitude, something that had begun with his 11 sons with him. And he prayed, guided by God's word to him. And I think that's instructive to you. If you don't know what to pray or what to say to God, begin by looking at what he has said. Begin by being guided and informed by God's word. So he prayed empowered by God's past faithfulness, empowered by God's present promise, and finally, empowered by God's future deliverance. Future deliverance. He says, In light of who you are, and in light of what you've promised God, act to deliver me from Esau. He prays specifically for the need in front of him, deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. And he's open and honest with God. And I hope you can be open and honest with God to say, I fear him because he may kill me and my family. And he brings that fear to God. Because you know what? God can handle your doubts, your questions, and your fear. Let me say that often people hear people go, well, I've got, I've got all of these questions and doubts and things. And then, you know, you can ask them further. And I go, well, where did you take your doubts? And they go, well, I took them to Google. And I asked Google, and I said, well, have you ever thought about taking them to God before you take it to Google? Because, you know, God actually knows more than Google does. I know that might be amazing to think about. Or, or I went to Wikipedia to answer my questions. (laughs) Friends, God, you can bring your doubts to him first. He's not just going to strike you with lightning right on the spot. He can handle it. He's not dethroned by your questions and your doubts. So if you're someone who has doubts today, let, let me let you know this is a safe place for you here and that God can handle it. Bring them to him first. Bring them to people you trust here who know what God's word has said and may we be ready to not push those people away, but to bring them in and go, let's look at this together and consider what God's word has to say. So he plans for Esau. He's going to meet him. He prays to God for help. And finally, Jacob sends presents to Esau. Jacob sends presents to Esau. He's going to butter him up. Let's send him all the stuff that any guy in the ancient Near East would want to get. Look at verse 13. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels. Think through that, right? And their calves. 
40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When he saw my brother meet you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau, and he moreover is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed in the camp that night. So look at this. He is sending these gifts that in these days would be equal to incredible wealth. I think even today, most of us don't just have camels hanging out. Most of us don't have 200-something livestock. We can just send to somebody via this sort of Uber service to surprise him on the spot, right? And so he sends them, and he sends them in these droves. So he goes, hey, he's going to get one, and then he's going to get more, and he's going to get more so the gifts can keep on giving. Jacob was trying to buy Esau's favor, and Jacob was ultimately relying on his own riches. In fact, the language of verse 20, where he says, I'm going to offer these presents in order to appease him, is actually language that's used in the book of Leviticus. But in Leviticus, instead of livestock being given as a gift, they were sacrificed in atonement. In fact, Jacob here is seeking salvation through his own riches and wisdom. Rather than trusting the Lord's promise, as he recounted even in his prayer, he chose his own way. He begins to walk in his own works and in his own wisdom. And friends, I think this brings us to a few points of application. Let me, let me have you consider first, this shows us that believers are people and people are complicated. I mean, Jacob was just praying, God, you've given me your steadfast love and faithfulness. Look at this promise. And then he's like, but I'm going to do the opposite of what that actually should lead me to do. Friends, all of us often act opposed to how we believe. And let me tell you something. Hypocrisy isn't just a church problem. It's a human problem. I love it when people are like, well, I'm never going to go to church because there's hypocrites there, and yet they still vote in elections. Every one of us is a hypocrite in one sense or another. There is nowhere you can go, any institution, any club, any group has some sort of hypocrisy in it. And you see all these companies that will advertise to you and go, we really care about you. And they'll shop there, but you know they really don't care about you. They care about your money and what you're going to give to them and providing you through that. And so I, but I don't see people boycotting these stores because they say one thing and do another. Let me tell you something. Hypocrisy is a human problem. It's everywhere. And that doesn't mean we should just glory in our sin, particularly as the people of God, right? But it does mean we shouldn't be surprised by it. Hypocrisy is the fruit of sin. All of us fall short of the glory of God. And friends, you even fall short of your own self-made standards. Whatever those may be, this is why we need a Savior. Because friends, if we can't even live up to our own expectations, how much more could we live up to God's perfect law and expectations? People are messy. Churches are messy. But we have an incredible Savior who has saved us and promised to be with us. Let me say, if you're a mess, welcome. So is everybody else here. No matter what they might put on the Sunday face, everybody here is a messy person. Welcome to the mess. You're in the right place. We're glad you're here. And let me tell you, I have some good news for you. Jesus died for messy people. Jesus died for messy people just like us here and those that are outside of here. Friends, this text reminds us that people are complicated. Even believers are complicated. 
But second, this also displays for us the power of fear. The power for fear will cause you to do exactly the opposite of what you believe is right. Fear will cloud your judgment, it'll distort your view, and it'll destroy good desires. Here, Jacob is not living in godly fear. He's guided by the fear of man, a fear drawn by his own anxious conclusion, the answer to a self-fulfilling prophecy. And all of this, friends, remember, was caused by Jacob's own doing decades before. Remember what I said in the life of Abraham, where Abraham took off into Egypt and then complained, God, why did you let me go to Egypt? And I'm like, why'd you pack up the caravan and take them down there? Jacob's not going, God, why am I having this problem with my brother? Well, you stole from him to begin with, right? Some of this, Jacob needs to take the blame for at least some of this problem, doesn't he? And now he's living in fear. Friends, what do you trust in when you're afraid? Maybe you are afraid of what the culture will do if you begin to really live out and believe God's word. God promises to be with you and to do you good. And friends, that's better than any of the false promises that the culture offers you. Maybe you're afraid to to be generous and to give because you're under incredible anxiety and financial stress. Friends, God understands that and he promises to provide for all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And friends, for those today who are afraid of death, the invitation would be not to cling to your own wisdom or your own goodness or even gifts you may have given. What Jacob needed to trust in was exactly what he recounted in his prayer, the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. These words are going to appear again and again and again in the Exodus, and it's going to be clearest seen in the cross of Jesus. Friends, if you're afraid of death, look to the one who died in your place and rose again from the dead and declares, Fear not, I have overcome the grave. But we must not be like Jacob, who tries to save himself from Esau in front of him. He's been striving with men, and we're going to see next week, God is going to keep his promise, and he's going to prevail against Esau. You can read ahead for next week if you'd like, but rather he should have clung to God by faith. Jacob was named Esau for his striving with men, but also second, for Jacob's striving with God. For Jacob's striving with God. We see Jacob continuing to live by fear. As we get to the next passage, which if you've kind of grown up in church, you've probably had a Sunday school lesson about this once or twice. But it's familiar, but it's still incredibly unusual, isn't it? Look at verse 22. The same night he arose, and he took two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jebek. And he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. So notice this. Jacob knows there's a potential enemy coming. He stays back and he puts the women, his children, and all his goods ahead of him. Come on, Jacob. Really? Putting all of them up where the enemy is. This was a cowardly move. He should have been out front protecting what God had given him. God promised to multiply his family And he was actually putting that family in potential danger. He stays the night, and he tries to sleep, but he wasn't going to get a wink. Look at verse 24. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Out of nowhere, as Jacob is alone, a man begins to wrestle with him. And interestingly enough, if you were to read the original Hebrew, there's actually an interesting word, uh, word play, as the words for Jacob, wrestle, and Jabek are all incredibly similar. And so it's literally meant to sound like Jacob is Jacobing in the Jacob. It's kind of interesting how that reads. But he's wrestling, and friends, this isn't the sort of wrestling you would see on WWE superstars or on TV. This is more like a bar fight. <laughs> this is a drag-out all-night wrestling match. This is an act of hostility. This is the sort of fight that Jacob was expecting to get from an angry Esau, and yet it wasn't his brother he was wrestling with. See this in your notes. The fight he tried to avoid from Esau, he got from God. 
the fight Jacob tried to avoid from Esau, he got from God. Specifically, we're going to see that it was one of God's angels he was wrestling with. Look at verse 24. Jacob was alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, we see this was an incredibly strenuous fight, and Jacob is in his 90s, and friends, he wasn't going to back down. Jacob was going to wrestle this man, and he, again, is in his upper 90s, and he was going to fight him to the end. But this, this man puts it to an end really quickly. He touches his hip, and his hip is out of commission, and Jacob is left with a limp. Look what happens next, verse 26. Look at this. Then Jacob said, let me go for the day is broken. Or the man said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you shriven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. That's probably a good question to ask before you fight a guy, just to, just to start there. But he asks it on the back end, right? But he said, why is it that you asked my name? And there he blessed him. The fight goes till morning, and Jacob doesn't relent. And out of this, he's given a new name, just like God renamed Abram to Abraham. So Jacob is now Israel. And did you notice he's named Israel? It says, because he strove with God and prevailed, but Jacob lost the fight. Did you notice that? Jacob, Jacob's hips out of commission. He lost the fights. But he did endure because to prevail here doesn't mean to win, but to persist, to endure, to not relent. And so he receives the blessing from the man. Look how the passage ends, verse 30. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which means uh, face to face, for he's seen God's face. And yet, his, my, and yet my life has been delivered. So the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. We come to find this encounter with this man was ultimately an encounter with God. The text tells us it was a man, yet... Jacob realized that he was truly fighting with God. I mean, let me say, this can't just be any man because he just touched Jacob's hip socket and it just went out, right? But ultimately, here's what we see. The prophet Hosea tells us a little more about who this was. Hosea, in his day, was rebuking the sins of the nation of Israel and calling them back to the God who saved them. And he draws them back to the life of Jacob. And here's what he says in Hosea chapter 12, verse 3. Look at this. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of the Lord, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. So there we're told, as Hosea is given this example, that Jacob strove with the angel, but behind his encounter with his angel, Jacob was ultimately wrestling with God. Let me say this. Many sermons you'll hear will stop at this point, and here's what they'll say. They'll say, just as Jacob wrestled with God, you must wrestle with God. And okay, that's not a bad point, but that isn't the point. Or others have used this text as a pattern for prayer, but Jacob doesn't seem to be praying at all here. But rather, there is something to learn. The last verse told us that Israel took something from this because they wouldn't eat the hip socket of their sacrifices because there's something in doing that they were to remember. So what's the point? What do we see from this? You'll see this in your notes. Through the wrestling, God was directing Jacob. Through the wrestling, God was directing Jacob. See this. Jacob has left, sent the whole family in front of him. He's afraid. And friends, Jacob's known to be a runner and Jacob was about to run 
to abort the mission, to flee his family and the promise, but God sent an angel to direct him where to go and to remind him of his presence and his promise. God delivered his life and crushed his pride. God humbled his swagger so he could walk in his purpose. The whole point for Jacob, for the future nation, and for us is that God alone must be our hope to not forsake the life of faith, but to cling to the God who's willing to wrestle us to keep us on the walk of faith. And friends, he continued on his journey at daybreak with a limp. Jacob was in the womb, grasping his brother's heel, but now he walks by grasping his hip. Jacob would strive with men, and he would strive with God and prevail. He would endure, his life would be spared, and he would walk forward in faith and face his fear. Friends, what if if God has has caused you to limp so you'd walk the right way? Friends, what if he has made something harder for you so you'd actually do it right? What if your sufferings were not purposeless, not an act of a distant God far away, but rather comes from the one who loves you and is willing to have a wrestling match with you to prove it. Jacob strove with his brother, and he prevailed with his life, and he strove with his heavenly father, and God delivered him with his life. But take this point home with you. This, in your notes, God's purpose for your life will never come without pain. God's purpose for your life will never come apart from pain. And what you do when the pain and suffering comes into your life is central. Let me say I completely agree with what Jonathan said, that that time right as you come out of a, as a senior in high school is so formative. One, because I think you encounter new sufferings you didn't always know about under your parents' roof. Bills, food, education, friend pressures, being the, the pressure of being out of the house. There's a lot of suffering that goes on in your first semester of college and beyond, right? But those times of suffering... We are called to walk in faith, even in pain, because the one we trust in has walked the road of pain. See, God's purpose for salvation could never come apart from pain because in order to save, because in order to save us from death, God had to endure pain in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, the cross is the truest answer to the problem of evil because God isn't just a distant observer of the evils of the world, he entered into them. He walked into them. God himself entered into our sufferings, and though he lived a perfectly sinless life, he never got himself into situations like Jacob did here. And yet he died on the cross in our place for our sin and our mess, and he rose again from the dead to conquer sin death and hell and the empty tomb declares that God has a purpose for pain that God can bring good out of evil and that light shines forth from darkness friends this truth isn't simply illustrated by Jacob's life but it's a truth you need to believe that is meant for us to believe Jesus has come to save us from our sins and to give us perspective and purpose for our pain I remember the old hymn I would hear growing up, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Can you say that with your life? Can you see God's purpose in your striving and your limping? You may not now, but one day you will. We often judge the whole of our life by its 30-second movie trailer we're living in. You ever judge? Nobody, nobody should judge a whole movie by the trailer. And friends, we do it all the time. Have you seen God's goodness through giving Jesus for you? You can take a step of faith today into a relationship with a God who loves you enough to wrestle with you, to get you on the right path, and who promises to do good through it. 
And this won't mean a pain-free life. I've never been one of those preachers that's a come to Jesus and have a life full of peace and no suffering at all. No, 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 no. But rather, see that through faith in Jesus, that even the darkest, even from the darkest tomb, a light radiates. Because the tomb is empty and life has won. God is in the process of recreating the world and making it even better than what it began as. And friends, he's going to begin through creating you into a new creation. Friends, when God speaks through his word, he always calls for a response. How will you respond this morning? Will you step forward for the first time into repentance and faith and begin a new walk with God today? You can do that right where you are through prayer, through talking to me, through talking to one of our leaders here today, or even through coming up here if you need to and getting alone with God. Maybe others of us just simply need to have a renewed perspective, repent of our wrong perspectives that have caused us to despair our suffering, to ask God to renew our mind, to see that the one who has won the victory holds the universe in his nail-scarred hands. Friends, this morning is a time to do business with God who has purpose for the pain. So whatever it is, I would call you in our time of response as we worship, to worship God for who he is, to repent for, for whatever we need to repent for, and to trust in him, whether it be for the millionth time or for the first time this morning, but to celebrate that Jesus has paid it all and that that could never come without pain. Let's pray. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father God, you are good to us. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Thank you that you do promise to do us good. You promise that if we're on the wrong path, you will correct us if needed, wrestle us to the ground, bring our hip out of sockets. We might have to limp our whole life, but at least we're going in the right direction. At least we're walking forward into something we might be afraid of, we might be uncertain of. We might not even think we know what we're going to do. But you're with us, just like you were with Jacob in the purpose of his life. I ask right now that if there's anybody within the sound of my voice who does not know you, maybe the problem of evil and the problem of pain were just something that they couldn't get out of their mind. Right now, I pray that they would see that the cross and the empty tomb is the answer to that question that you entered into our sufferings you died for our sins, for our mess. You were buried in a borrowed tomb. But you rose again on the third day to show God's power, his grace, his goodness, and that what man might intend for evil, God intends for good. And there is some mystery behind that, but that that's okay. I pray for those of us that maybe have just lost our way or got lost in the tunnel vision of our own experience and suffering, that you would reignite our perspective, that you would help us to renew our minds through your word and by your people today. And Lord, I pray you would empower us to leave here and to speak of the glorious good news that you save us from our sins. And I ask and I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Still read.
wash all of our sins away and if you or, or if you would like to know more about this incredible Jesus whose blood cleanses us from all of our sins again please stay after talk to one of us we'll have somebody back at the welcome table who can speak more with you about that and, and grab me or whoever you can find uh, we close our service with a benediction a blessing from God's word this from Psalm 67 May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that his way may be known on earth and his saving power among all nations. Amen.